Hello, and welcome to the second episode of the Gen Z Mafia podcast. This is the show where you get a glimpse into our amazing community of builders. Today, we're joined by Sean Purry. Sean started a company that got acquired by Twitch, started his own rolling fund, and co-hosts the My First Million podcast. In our conversation, we cover all different parts of his journey, how he thinks about startups and ideas, and even riff with the community on some ideas of our own. I'm excited for you to hear it. Welcome to, to Gen Z Mafia. You said you've actually been in here for a while, right? Yeah, I've been in the Discord. I haven't done anything, but I love that you guys do this. This is so smart and so good. So I'm a fan of what you guys do, even though I haven't been active at all yet. Who's been like the best fireside so far? My personal favorite was Ryan Hoover from Product Hunt. I liked him. I'm seeing Justin Kahn. Yeah, I'm sure he was great. So I got to be the best. That's my goal. Awesome. Yeah. One of the things I'm excited to share that your kind of strength is the ideating and the building and working on multiple things at once because your Twitter has been electric these past couple of weeks. And there's definitely some things that a lot of the makers in here will be interested in getting involved in. So I guess first off the bat, how would you describe what you do for a living and kind of give people a, a glance into the different things you have spinning? Yeah. Good question. On the ideating thing, I got lucky because I've always been the type of person that has a ton of ideas all the time. And when I was younger, like, well, I say younger, but it was probably like a little older than you guys mostly. I kind of didn't flex that muscle. Like I had it, but I wasn't around other people who really like loved to bounce ideas around or wanted to build ideas. And uh, it's one of those things. That's why I like that you guys have this discord, just being around even two other people who are like that, who are. Uh, tr- builders, makers, you know, ideaholics, it'll change the way you think because you'll have somebody to bounce stuff off of. And so in college, I met two friends who were like that. We loved to scheme up ideas. We executed on a couple of them, a very small scale. You know, we tried to win the McDonald's uh, Monopoly game that they had. We tried to sneak into the big basketball game without paying for tickets or whatever. Uh, just different like questions of like, could we hack the system? And that translated into business ideas. I got on the startup path. And then the last six years, I had kind of the sweetest gig you can get. I got to run an idea lab with a husband and wife duo, Michael and Sochi Birch. They themselves had sold a company for nearly a billion dollars and took that money and basically built the dopest office you could think of in San Francisco. They hired up 20 brilliant engineers and they were like, cool, this is our idea lab. We get to dream up ideas and then we'll build them and we own them. We don't need to pitch investors and we're, we're going to work on multiple ideas at once. And so I got to go and work there. And it was sort of like a, if you guys have seen Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, it was sort of like that. Like he was Willy Wonka. He had built this idea lab. I came in like, you know, Charlie trying to uh, just check out the factory. And within a few months, he actually handed me the keys and named me CEO of the of the Idea Lab. He was the CEO. He became chairman, and I became CEO. And so I got to run the Idea Lab for about six years. And so imagine every day basically brainstorming ideas with some of the smartest people in San Francisco and then having a team of designers and engineers to build prototypes rapidly and getting really good at going zero to one. Um, that's what I did. So that's kind of how I got here. The last idea we built, I sold, or I should say, we sold to Twitch. So we got acquired last year. And since then, I've been at Twitch 
Uh, so my day job is I run kind of like international growth uh, and mobile for Twitch. And then in the evenings, my side hustle is I host a podcast that's kind of like a top 50 business podcast called My First Million. That does two to three million downloads a year now. We're, we're now, we just finished one year. I run an angel fund for myself that just kind of like a rolling fund that's like an extension of my own angel investing that we invest in about 30 companies a year, about $3 million. I have some other projects that I do, but that's the gist of it. So for the idea lab that you were in, it sounds like the ideal place to build the ideation muscle as a founder in the future. So you probably got really good at taking something from the earliest stage of an idea and figuring out what really has legs. Can you yeah. maybe share what were your key takeaways from that process? Because you guys were trying to build like moonshots, right? Yeah, exactly. So the, every kind of idea lab or studio tends to have like some theme or focus. Some people focus on B2B. Some people focus on fintech or some people. Ours was consumer and really it became about social projects because the investors who had started the lab, they themselves had built a social network, Bebo, which was, you know, at that time, the third largest social network in the world, 100 million users type of thing, sold it for 850 million. And the, so the idea was like, they almost built Facebook, like Facebook won that battle, MySpace and Bebo kind of like got acquired and didn't make it the full way. So the dream was always, all right, can we build the next Twitter? Can we build the next YouTube? And like, you know, it could be anything. It could have been Discord. Uh, unfortunately, that's a kind of catch lightning in a bottle type of game plan, like build the next big social thing. It was fun as hell to try but we ultimately weren't able to build a hundred million plus user product. We got to like 4 million users, 5 million users, but never all the way. That's the moonshot part of it. In terms of takeaways, yeah, like a bunch, you know, I could talk all day about it, but if I was going to give you three, I would say focus, focus, focus. The hardest part of an idea lab is that you got multiple ideas in house at once. And what happens is it's very easy to start an idea, get excited, you build a prototype, you're super pumped, you show it to some people, you get good reactions, and it starts to grow a little bit. And then every project, whether it's successful or unsuccessful, ultimately, hits plateaus, hits walls, where things don't just immediately and unstoppably go up and to the right. Like there are periods where things aren't working, growth is slow, the usage is kind of leaky, it's not super sticky yet. And you got to work on your product to get it right. And you got to iterate and kind of tweak it and tweak the marketing, tweak the product, tweak everything until you get it right. The problem with an idea lab is you also have three other ideas going at the same time that are all still in that glorious, new, shiny object phase. So naturally, even though you, you won't say it, naturally, your eyes will start to drift off this thing that's in the trough of sorrow. You'll drift away from that one because that one's hard as shit. You're stuck in a plateau. And you'll start to look at these new ideas like, oh, that one has no flaws. And this just has no flaws because you haven't tried it yet. Focus is the biggest thing. I think the idea labs that, and, you know, in general, the projects that do well are people who they have a singular focus. They're trying to make X great. And I'm guilty of this all the time. Even now, you know, you ask me what I'm doing and it's like, well, I have a day job. I have a side hustle. I have a fund. Mm -hmm. I have all this stuff. And so, you know, I'm still guilty of this. But I would say I kind of have two modes. I have dabbler mode where I intentionally will try a few different things. To try to see which one do I like, which one gives me energy, which one has legs, and then I go hyper focus. And so right now, after you know, I was in hyper focus mode for five years, sold the company, and now I'm back in dabbler mode, basically like, oh, do I like investing? Do I like the podcast? Do I like being kind of like an exec at a tech company? What do I like to do? And so that's so that's why I'm dabbling right now to see what does the next decade look like. So you kind of got to know which mode you're in. Are you in dabbler mode or like hyper-focus mode? And in general, all the gains happen in hyper-focus, but you can't hyper-focus too early. If you're not sure that like you really like this, then dabble for a bit. Date. Don't get married to the idea yet.
Okay, so let's say someone in this chat is like, they think that they have the next big thing on their hands. They're really excited about it. They're about to dive into that hyper-focused mode you were talking about. What are like the most important questions they should be asking themselves? Because there's people here like that, and I think it could be helpful. Is it growing? The only way you know if you really have something is it's got to make contact with customers. So you got to get your thing into people's hands. You got to see how they're using it. You got to see how they react. And the hard and unfortunate thing that most people don't talk about is most things don't have product market fit. They never do. And there's this great quote, I think Mark Andreessen said, product market fit is is the only thing that matters for startups. And that was the first point. And he talks about that. And he says, the second thing, you know, there's like two phases of a company. There's before product market fit and after. And like, you're all in the before part, you know, at the beginning. And then the the second thing is, all right, well, how do you know if you're in it? If you're asking, you don't have it. <laughs> you know, like it's obvious when you have it. And he says, product market fit is like sex. You know it when you're having it. And most projects just don't get there. And you really just feel like you're pushing the boulder up a hill and it's just not working. And you just got to be honest with yourself and say, it's not working. But I have these three ideas that I still want to try, like this variation of the product, this audience who hasn't heard about it yet, this marketing or positioning, this, this growth channel, whatever, right? And you just got to say, all right. I still have five ideas that I think could totally work and I'm going to go through all five of those. And at some point you look at your list and you're like, shit, I kind of went through all the ideas that I thought were the ones that were like big, important changes. And these next five ideas, like, I don't think they're going to change anything. And if you hit that point, you know, it's time to move on. But so to answer your question, if you're somebody who thinks you got the next big thing, it's like, well, do I already have users who are loving it and is it growing? And if it's not, okay, cool. Let me just accept the fact that I'm pre-product market fit. And let me try to get to the point where it's it's there. And it's the, the difference of you're pushing a boulder up a hill. And then at some point you got to the top and then the boulder starts to roll down the other side. And if you just imagine like pushing a boulder down a mountain, it's like the boulder is going to go faster than you. You're chasing it at that point. That's when you have product market fit. Users are pulling the product faster than you can keep up with. Uh, you can't make enough product. You can't iterate enough. You can't give them the features that they want. Your servers are falling over. That's what product market fit really looks like. And it's important not to like talk yourself into and kind of bullshit yourself into thinking you're there when it's like weak, because that's when you waste a lot of time. When you lie to yourself, oh, I've got product market fit and you really don't. And that's how like years get wasted and millions of dollars get burned. So you kind of have described this experience you had with Bebo that was a little bit like pushing that boulder up the hill, right? Like it, yeah. it never quite got to the point where everything was just on fire successful. And yeah. So- yeah. I was like, this is not, this is not the thing where it's product market fit and all we need to do is pour gas on the fire. It wasn't that. And I think it's super smart because you avoided wasting potentially years of your life. How would you help other founders have that reality check to realize that maybe this thing isn't going to turn around and I should look for a soft exit like you did? Right. My situation is a little different. I had to be ultra honest with myself because in an idea lab, you're just getting funded. Like we were just getting bankrolled indefinitely, right? Most people are not in that situation. Most people have the reality of we're going to run out of funding. That's like the beauty of startups is like, it's like a highly evolutionary process. Only the fittest survive, right? Only the companies that grow get more capital. All the others die. So normally death of the project, you run out of money. The second is before you run out of money, actually, you, you typically run out of belief and you stop working on it or you stop working as hard on it or you start to work on something else or whatever. You start to drift. That usually comes first. Those are kind of late. That's You've spent all the time on it. So the best way that I've seen is like twofold. I would say there's a good way 
And there's an amazing way. I'll tell you the good way first. This is what we did. The good way is you time box things. So we would give ourselves six weeks with any idea. We said, all right, this idea has six weeks to live. You, you get excited about an idea, you sort of sleep on it. If you're still excited about it the next day, kind of like sketch it out. If you're still excited about it, okay, now you give it the six weeks, right? It has enough merit where you believe the market's big enough. You, you have a lot of conviction. So now we would give ourselves six weeks and we would state up front. We would write down at the beginning, day one, we would write down, all right, after six weeks, I think we should be able to reach this many customers. And here's what we're looking for. We're looking for this type of reaction. It's not about the number, right? It doesn't matter if it's 1,000 users or 2,000 users. It doesn't matter if they're using it daily or three times a week or whatever, right? That's not really what matters. It's just about having something that you hold yourself accountable to at the beginning when you're not emotionally attached. And then six weeks later, when you, when you say, all right, it's check-in time, we've gone the six weeks, did we hit those milestones that we said we were going to hit? And um, it's okay if you didn't, because sometimes things usually, you know, for entrepreneurs, we usually think things are going to happen faster than they do. But you have to be honest. You have to say, no, we didn't, but I'm going to continue because X. This is what gives me faith. I'm seeing this type of signal, this type of signal, this type of signal. So I'm giving myself another five weeks, four weeks, two weeks, whatever it is. And so we were always time boxing and we had this phrase, uh, dead by default, like this project by default. If in six weeks we don't have momentum, it's dead. Whereas I think what most people do is alive by default. You know, I'm going to keep doing this until something kills me, until I run out of money, until whatever, uh, until a competitor like knocks us out or until we stop believing. And so we just did that in the idea lab. Now, for most of you, you're not in an idea lab. You don't have to like be as disciplined as we had to be in, in an idea lab. But I would say like the better way to do it, what the real winners do, which I now come to appreciate more. I always knew this, but I didn't act on it, right? And that's like the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is just knowing it. Wisdom is actually doing it. The real wisdom is you should work on a project that you are so obsessed with that you'll make it happen. You're not measuring, you know, it has to work within six weeks, it has to work within nine weeks, it has to hit this metric. It's like, no, I believe in the mission so much. I believe in the vision so much. I am so curious about this space or I want this to exist because I want this in my life and I'm going to build it until I'm happy with it and I'm using it. And then other people like me will use it too, right? Like that's really where the absolute A plus startups come from for the most part. Of course, there are exceptions, but I would say if, if, you're really going to build, and I didn't listen to this advice. I'm 32 now. I didn't listen to this advice age 21 through 32. I, I kind of just chased opportunities like, oh, there's a market opportunity. This is, this is missing. Oh, this could be big. But now I realize the best ones are the ones where either you are the customer or you are so enamored with the problem and the, the vision, the mission that you just decide, all right, I'm going to commit five years of my life to making this happen one way or another. I'll be flexible on the, on the how, but I'm going to make this happen. And uh, that's the best way to go about it, really. Yeah, that's that's awesome. You're speaking to some lived experience that I've had recently. And so it it's really helpful to hear it reinforced. Go look at the big winners, right? Apple was started this way. Woz just wanted this to exist. You know, then you think about Tesla, then you think about SpaceX, both same things, you know, had to do it. Facebook, same thing. Zuck wanted this to exist. He wanted to use it. He wanted to make it. It wasn't clear that it was going to be big. Google, same thing, right? And you could just go on and on down the list. Discord actually was started this kind of the same way. Like, yeah, they thought there was a market opportunity, but like they literally wanted to use a product like this uh, while they were building their game. And they were so sick of the existing thing. And they're just like, fuck this. We can solve this. You know, somebody said something about SaaS tools. Hey, SaaS tools works too. I have a whole, you know, the older you get, the more boring you get where you're like, oh, I don't care about dating apps anymore. I care about email sending deliverability. You know, like I have an email list. 
I'm sick of not knowing X, Y, Z, or I'm sick of half of it going into the promotions tab or bouncing. Like I'll build a solution that I want because I, you know, I know that I want it as a creator and maybe that there's 10,000 other creators like me who want to email their email list and, and have this work better. Or like at my company, I want this process to work more efficiently. And uh, that's a great place to come from. I don't think of passion like romance. I think of it like an itch you want to scratch. And also either you want to scratch it for yourself or you just think that the world should be this way. The world today is X. And tomorrow, if it was Y, the world would be a better place. All right, I'm going to go build Y, whether I'm the user or not. Yeah, for me, it's like a virus. Like you're trying to sleep at night and you can't stop thinking about this thing. You're like, why am I working on anything else? I know the world's going to be this way. You know, you have to make it so. So I think you're you're onto something with your description there. Yep. So one of the things that's most impressive about you, I think, is you said your goal is to teach 1% of the global population over the next 10 years. Now, you know, obviously that's incredibly ambitious. Do you want to kind of explain what you mean by that and maybe yep. follow up? How could you possibly make that happen? So this is kind of a fun experience. When you sell a company, all kinds of weird shit happens. Well, a lot of weird, weird emotions. You get excited because you're like, oh, fuck, I'm going to make all this money. You get kind of sad. You're like, oh, man, this team I love, we're all going to kind of like go join this big company. And like, who knows what's going to happen there? You know, this product is going to probably get shut down or changed in some way. And, you know, we worked really hard on this. There's like relief, like, oh, shit, okay, we landed the plane. You know, we didn't crash. Uh, I thought we were going to crash a bunch of times. So all these emotions. One of the emotions was like this weird numb feeling where I was like, it's weird that I really want this to sell. I asked myself a question. I said, what's a business you couldn't buy me out of? Like, what's a business I would start that I wasn't trying to sell? Like, I just want to actually do that business. I just sort of seemed obvious. It was like a dumb thing to say, but like, it just seemed obvious to me. Well, I should do that next. Whatever I do next should be the thing that I'm not trying to do for a flip. I'm doing it because I want to do this. Like you couldn't buy me out of it uh, because what what am I going to do with the money? I just want, this is what I want to do. And so as I thought about that, I started to get really clear on what I wanted to do, which was I always have the most fun teaching because I think teaching combines two of my favorite things. One is learning, right? Like in order to teach, you have to actually learn and understand something at a really fundamental level. Otherwise, it's going to be really hard to teach it. Um, so I'm, I like learning new shit. That's kind of my favorite thing to do. My second favorite thing to do is basically like distilling things down or uh, packaging it. So I thought, all right, why don't I do that today? Well, being a teacher today is kind of a weird thing, right? Like most teachers, my favorite teacher, my best teacher growing up, I think he made like $65,000. He probably in a, in a given year was teaching like 150 students across all his classes. It's like very small scale, you know? And so that's why I wasn't teaching. Teachers don't make very much and they don't reach very many people. But like technology, the one thing it does do amazingly well is it brings scale to great things. So today, I think some of the best teachers on Teachable and through podcasts and other places, they reach millions of people and they make millions of dollars, right? And so I started to think about that, like, okay, should I create like a university? Should I teach something myself? And I just sort of set this goal for myself. I said, all right, last goal of my decade was like, figure out what I really want to do, meet an awesome person who, you know, I want to marry and be with. And this is from age 20 to 30. It was like, meet somebody awesome who I want to be with, figure out what I really like to do in life. And the last thing was like, make a million bucks. That was my goal. And I like surpassed all three of those. Right. And I thought, all right, well, I turned 30. Well, what do I want to do from 30 to 40? 
And from 30 to 40 is basically this. It's like, I want to turn comfortable money into fuck you money because that's basically, it's not really about saying fuck you. It's really about having freedom, total freedom. Get absolute total freedom. The second thing is have a bunch of kids. And the third thing is how do I teach 1% of the global population? So that's 70 million people today. How do I have 70 million people consider me somebody who really taught them something? One of their favorite teachers. I know for me, I have a bunch of people I learned from on YouTube that I love these people. I learned so much from them and they really helped me out and they really made an impact on me. I think it'd be great to somehow reach that many people. So then the question is, how do you do that? I kind of had this realization, which is everybody wants the good life. Most people don't have the good life, right? If you just look at the statistics, most people in America are overweight or obese. So we all want to be fit, but reality, most people are overweight or obese. We all want to be rich. Most people have very little money saved up. There's the old stat, like most people can't afford a surprise $500 medical bill. Most people have less than $10,000 in savings, right? Most marriages end in divorce or are unhappy marriages. So that seems bad. Most people don't love their job, yet you spend half of your waking hours doing it. So I sort of had this realization, which is like, look, first for myself, I don't want to do what most people do because the results that most people get on any area of life that matters, whether it's love, whether it's work, whether it's money, whether it's health, most people get bad results. So I don't want to do what most people do because I don't want to get the result most people get. Second thing is, well, why are most people ending up in this state? And could I help some percentage of people get closer to what they actually want? And like, how do you do that? Well, you can't do it for them, but you can teach them. You can inspire them and you can show them the way. And so that's the premise of what I'm doing is I think that most people end up with a life that they don't want and that I don't want. And so I wanted to change my own life so that I, I had a happy marriage. I loved what I do. I make great money and I'm healthy and fit. Uh, and I'm going to do that for myself. And then everything I learned about doing it for myself, I'm going to package up and I'm going to teach to as many people as I can. And I think I can do that. And I think I can reach 70 million people who take those lessons and do it for themselves. And so what does failure look like for that process? In, in 10 years, what would make you look back and say, I, I didn't hit that goal. And then if you didn't hit it, what would be the most likely reason for missing it? The ultimate failure would be to go around trying to teach it without doing it myself. <laughs> right? Like, you know, all the people who are selling you get rich stuff and they themselves are not rich. They're trying to get rich off you. Like, you know, if, I, if I'm going around teaching people how to do great in business, but I've never done great in business myself, then that would be a failure because it would be inauthentic, right? I don't consider it if I get to 10 million instead of 70 million or 2 million instead of 70 million, whatever, right? The vector of magnitude, it'll just take me a little more time. The only real failure is if it's uh, incongruent or inauthentic. If I myself have not figured out how to do it and I go around trying to tell other people how to do it, that will be the ultimate failure. So I'm sure your DMs have become flooded. How do you filter people out? And what are some things that, interest you? Because I'm sure a lot of people like us are at a point in their lives right now where they're the ones sending the emails, you know, trying to get that, right. that cold reach out. So what can we do to be more successful? Yeah. So two questions. How do you deal with it? Really simple. I did this like mastermind group of people who had businesses doing over a million dollars, but were trying to get to 10 million. And out of there, there was one guy who really stood out to me. I thought he was really clever and smart or whatever. And I just kind of approached him. I was like, Hey, your business is good, but it's not really growing. It's kind of a cash cow, but it's not like going to take off. Do you know what you're going to do next? And hey, if you don't know what you're going to do next, I have more projects than I could possibly handle. You want to be my like partner in crime here and like just help me with, with some of these opportunities because I'm just, I have opportunity coming out of my ears. And so I just gave him my Twitter account. And so what he does is he looks through people who follow me and he DMs some of them saying, hey, 
your thing is awesome, blah, blah, blah. And then other times there's people who DM me and I just, I can't go through all the DMs. He goes through and filters it and then he turns those into meetings. I told him, hey, on Fridays from these five hours, just go back to back meetings with random people. And so, you know, I'll just do meetings with, uh, oh, this guy, this guy's an NBA player, right? right? And so he's bringing all that to me. I was just dropping that on the floor because I didn't have the time. So a big game changer for me was finding Ben and just handing him my Twitter and my email and just being like, there's gold in here if you want to take advantage. I like to create, but I'm not great at the organization and follow through and follow up with people. I, I'm not great at that. He's great at that. In terms of outreach, I'll share with you like a, a screenshot of what I sent when I applied to work for Michael Birch, who again, billionaire guy, had this idea lab, and he had this job posting that basically said, hey, we're hiring our first product manager, our first product person. We have 20 engineers, we have two designers and me, and we have this office and blah, blah, blah. And uh, if you haven't seen it, you should just Google Monkey Inferno office if you want to see like the dream office. It's crazy. I just looked at this listing and I was like, wow, this looks like the dream place to work. But before that, I had started uh, a cloud kitchen sushi restaurant, which like went nowhere, crashed, you know, cool project, but like way too early. Like there was no delivery apps at that time. And then secondly, I had done a biotech thing in Australia, a bioenergy company, uh, which biotech is cool. It's tech, but it's not software. It's not Silicon Valley. And so... I knew I wanted to move to Silicon Valley. I just decided to move from Australia. I, I quit a job that was paying me a lot of money. And I moved to Silicon Valley and I said, all right, I'm going to do a different process than what most people do. Most people apply to a bunch of things very lightly, right? They just keep sending the same generic cold email with a generic resume and they hope somebody gets back to them. And then they wonder why nobody gets back to them. It's like, well, you did nothing to stand out. So I was like, instead, I'm going to find the one or two things I really want to do, and I'm going to go all out for them. And the two things I had, this is back in 2012, Stripe was a company I found interesting. And I was like, I want to work at Stripe. And the other one was this Idea Lab Monkey Inferno. I was like, I think one of those two, I'm going to go all in for those two. So for each one, I you know, researched the people behind it. I found, oh, I have a mutual connection. A guy who was my mentor, who thought really highly of me, was a mentor for this early Stripe employee guy. And he put in the, I asked him, could you put in the good word? And he did. He got me an interview. Then I made like a personal website that was tailored to why I'm a great fit for that job. I wrote an email that was like a well-written cold email. I mean, now when I look at it, it's cringy as hell, but like I tried to write a really well-written email to stand out to say, Hey, look, you know, I'll start off the bat. I'm not qualified for this job you have. This says seven years of product management experience from one of the big tech companies like Google, Facebook, et cetera. I don't even know what product management stands for, but I'm a hustler. I can help. Here's how. What most people do wrong is they spend the whole cold email explaining who they are. Here's me. Here's why I'm so great. The other person didn't ask why you're so great. So the better way is to say, hey, here's how I can help you. And so all the people who I've ended up, you know, like kind of working with or taking a meeting from, it's because they either, A, they're working on something really interesting. It's, hey, I'm working on something really interesting. I thought you would like it. Uh, here's a link to it. Or here's a little, you know, two-minute loom video. I would love just to get your quick, you know, one-line opinion on uh, what you think of this. You know, I really, you know, and then they kind of suck up to you. It's like, oh, I love the podcast. And, you know, I've recommended it to 10 friends. That's a great way to get a reply. The other way is to say, hey, I noticed your website kind of sucks. Like if you go look at my website now, it's much cooler. It's because some guy reached out and was like, hey, your website kind of sucks. I'm a front end guy. I would love to just, you know, remake your website for you free. And I was like, okay. And he's like, you know, just how about this? Like, do you like any of these three websites? If so, I can make your version of that. And he's like made it for me. And then through that, I got to know him a little bit. I have some opportunities I could help him get a foot in the door with, that sort of thing. So if you want to reach out cold, I would say either A, 
be doing something really interesting and just don't bullshit and ask for a meeting. Don't ask for a coffee. Don't ask for a call. Just share the thing you're doing. If it's interesting, I will ask for a call. I will ask to meet you. I'll ask to invest and make it easy for me to like check it out. Like make a GIF, make a Loom video, send me the link, send me a demo, whatever. The second thing would be help the other person with their projects. So when the way I got the job with Monkey Inferno, they were like, oh, you, you know, this seems interesting, but you don't really have any of the experience for this role. And so what I did was I saw what projects they were working on and I started making slide decks about how they could improve them. And I was like, hey, I saw you guys are working on this project. I really like it. I think you're doing these three things well. I noticed that the onboarding was a little bit confusing for me as a user. So I jotted down some of the pain points. I created a mock-up of what I think it could be to be better. I just wanted to share this with you guys. I love nerding out about products, so I thought I'd share. And that's when they got to see me in action and they were like, okay, I like this guy. You know, Maybe we should actually bring him in. And so when they hired me, they told me, look, we, we really want to hire you. We love your hustle. We still think you're not qualified for the job, so we're probably going to hire someone with more experience, You know, somebody 10 years more experience, uh, but we want you in anyways. And I was like, sure, no problem. And four months later, they named me CEO of the lab. That's how fast things can move in, in Silicon Valley because it's all based on merit. It's not based on age or tenure or really years of experience. It's all based on how much, like, what can you do? And uh, so you just got to show what you can do. Yeah, I think that's why this group is so focused on building. We always talk about it's time to build. We're always focused on, you know, pushing out things that other people in the group are actually building. And it's because, you know, you can sit out and reach out to people on Twitter all day and have all you want in your notes, but you need to be doing something actually interesting in order to make a lot of this stuff happen. One thing, like, so so the other day I put out this tweet saying, oh, you know, if you're under 21, I want to create a little mastermind. I don't know if people saw that, but I got a bunch of replies and a bunch of really impressive people. One thing I would say, though, and I used to do this too, sometimes when you're younger, you just haven't been around enough. You haven't had enough working years to, like, build up this like really impressive resume. So you have two options. One is you kind of like inflate what you've done. Like for example, somebody tweeted like, oh, I built this product and it's used by multiple billion dollar companies. And it's like, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> it wasn't even that they used it. It was like, I had meetings with multiple billion dollar companies. It's like, well, that doesn't mean anything. Rather than inflate, I actually like what most real doers respond to is just like pure honesty and hustle. And like, they want to help somebody who like doesn't have it all figured out. So like looking like you have a whole bunch of things figured out and looking like you're more advanced than you are actually doesn't really help that much. What's more interesting is I'm really interested and genuinely curious about X space. It doesn't have to be the billion trillion dollar markets or anything like that. Like it might be like, you're really interested in like NFT collectibles on the blockchain, right? And like, who the fuck knows if that's going to be bigger or it's going to be dumb. And you say like, you know, I'm really into collecting, you know, Pokemon cards. So I built this Pokemon card scraper that looks at eBay every day and uh, checks the eBay price of Pokemon cards and blah, 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 blah. That doesn't have to be like a startup. Like it just has to be like, I'm interested in things. And when I'm interested, I build things and I try to like accomplish my little goals. And like, I know for me and most of my friends, we were, we were more likely to take bets on people who just do small projects really well than like try to like solve climate change at the age of 17. But it's like, uh, are you just like saying big things because you're trying to like look impressive? Like the real impressive people were like, I noticed that there's like this arbitrage opportunity or my dad runs a dealership and they didn't have a website. So I built them a website. I started running Facebook ads and I added $2,000 a month to my dad's business or whatever. Like that is more impressive than trying to like act 
like the people you see on TechCrunch and shit like that. Like it doesn't really work. Um, are there some questions in the chat that I think people want me to answer? Do you think it's necessary to live in Silicon Valley? No, not at all. I believe Silicon Valley exists on Twitter. What I would do is I would like try to co-locate with other, like wherever y'all live, I would just be getting houses in, you know, LA, Miami, wherever, like the fucking TikTok houses or whatever. I would do that with Gen Z Mafia. I would be like, all right, cool. We're going to spend every kind of summer and winter in a house or like this kind of like barracks, basically cabins. And we're going to go build stuff and we're going to make friends. Like we're going to make friends with each other and we're just going to build cool shit. And we're going to work on a bunch of projects. And like, we're so young that like, these projects don't even have to be the ones that hit. These just need to be like good adventures. They just need to be things that teach us stuff, that put a little money in our pockets, that introduce us to some people. But really, like, we just need to do what we're mostly curious about. And then, like, you know, when I'm 25, I can figure out what I want to do when I grow up. Uh, but, like, you have, like, you know, five, six years easily where you just need to build cool projects that you're genuinely into, learn how to get users, learn how to build, learn how to sell, stash some money away here and there. You don't need to, like, hit the big one right now. I think, you know, the energy there is real and that's kind of why most of us are here in this group. You mentioned that that under 21-year-old mastermind. Is there anything else you want to plug for that? I know there's some people in the chat who are interested in it. So mastermind group is typically five, six people. You meet once a month. Used to be in person, right? You'd go out to dinner or you'd just go to a whiteboard room and just jam out on ideas and, and help each other with you, with each other's businesses for like three hours. These were awesome. Some of my best friends came from this. That's how I learned how to sell my company. I was one of my friends from this. Some of my groomsmen at my wedding came from this. So I loved all that. Now, what I thought I would do is pick five people who are kind of like under 21. And I said, I will help coach you, mentor you. No, no, no strings attached. I'm not like no equity, no nothing. Just like I'll help. Because there's something in it for me, which is I just love hanging out with people who have pure energy and hustle and like anything is possible attitude. The older people get, the more jaded and skeptical and tired they get. And I don't want to hang out with people my age. I want to hang out with people 10 years younger than me because they have that energy that I, I want to have for myself. And it's a good reminder. And also they're into things that are more likely to be the future. So I said, I'll do that. And I'll invite one friend who's built something that's like, you know, either a hundred million dollar plus business or a hundred million plus user business to each one. So I was going to offer that up. Now I got way more interested people like that were actually legit. Like I was impressed by them. They seemed really interesting than, than five. I thought five would be hard to get. I think I got 50 who were like legit. And so what we did was my co-founder has a discord already. That's kind of like a mini Y Combinator. He just runs it through discord. He's amazing. He's a, he's a monster. And he just helps like more technical talent figure out how to grow their businesses. And so I, I asked him, I said, hey, let's let's make a channel in your Discord for this kind of like next gen of founders. And what we're going to do is the same model, but instead of just picking five, we're going to pick five that get to get the coaching each time. But we're going to let all the other founders who, who qualified, like kind of watch that coaching happen. So there's like people on stage and people in the audience. And then we'll just rotate. Each month, we'll put five different people on stage. So everyone gets to like get to see these office hours happen. Perfect. Yeah, no, that sounds like a much better way to to have that impact at scale that you were talking about with your teaching. So did you bring any startup ideas that you wanted to talk about, you know, specifically with a group of Gen Z people? Um, if you just ask me like, what is like the one or two biggest ideas in my head right now? I think there's something really interesting with live e-commerce, mm -hmm. live video e-commerce. I'm not the only one who thinks this. Some other people have talked about this, but I'm a big believer in it. 
So basically, in China, this already happens a lot, which is influencers live on video and they're picking up products and you could just hit buy button and just like buy it right there. It's just like a totally different way of like, I think when you go to a, a, a Shopify store today or you go to like any e-commerce store, it, the way it looks is just a static grid of images and you kind of click one and then you read about it and you like swipe to the next photo. I think that's going to look like, you know, GeoCities or that's going to look like ancient when when this really hits. So this is already a big thing in Asia. It's not as big here yet. Pop Shop is trying to do it. There's some others trying to do this kind of like mobile QVC. It's very hard to do. I think the niche that it works best in is right now collectibles or trading cards. I'll give you two niches where this is working. Whatnot is is a good one for this for Pokemon cards. Basically, there's somebody sitting at a desk or like a table with a bunch of unopened packs of Pokemon cards. And then you have Pokemon collectors who come into the stream they hit the buy button, the person opens the pack live on stream, and you're trying to see do you get a Charizard or not. So there's like this kind of like gambling, you know, loot box mentality that goes into it. And I know for me, like I dropped 500 bucks on a basketball trading card stream the other night. And I was like, dude, this is fun. Like, I, I, A, this is dangerous. I just dropped $500 in like 10 seconds. But man, this does feel like the future of like shopping. I also know that for my wife, she has an e-commerce store and she does these private Facebook streams to the community showing new products. And like, they, like it's crazy. The engagement's crazy. And all it's missing is just a buy button to be like, yes, I want that. It feels way more like real and authentic and exciting than just looking at a photo on a, on a website. Um, the other niche that this works really well in is trade shows. So most of you guys probably never been to a trade show, but you know, a trade show is just like a conference, but it's a conference with buyers and sellers. So it's more like a marketplace. You can go to a trade show for cannabis. You can go to a trade show for crystals. And uh, there's just a bunch of like wholesalers and there's a bunch of buyers. And they look at each other's products. They get little samples. They hand out business cards and then they buy, you know, they place orders for, for, for their stores. Trade shows, you know, with COVID especially have just been decimated. And in general, they're very inefficient processes. I think somebody's going to create the like Hopin or Zoom for uh, trade shows. If you look in the Alibaba app, they already have this built into the Alibaba app and it's amazing. The vendors have their little camera set up and they can show their products and you can browse their catalog. You can say, hey, can you show me this one product from the catalog? They hold it up. They answer your questions and you trade business card information through the app and then you can place an order for a thousand of that product. So I just think that's amazing. So do you think that's something that would translate to like, you know, all the clothing Shopify shops out there? I think so. Just do the math, right? Let's say you have a salesperson on video for, for the hour, you know, some mom in Utah. She has your product and she's well-versed enough to answer questions about it and show it and give somebody trust to go ahead and make a purchase. You know, she might cost you $12, $15 an hour. Your average product might be $50, you know, per per purchase. So if, if she can lift your conversion rate by even like half a percentage point and you're sending, you know, you're spending $1,000 a day on Facebook ads, one purchase will pay for that person's hour of being a salesperson on your website. And so I just think that more and more companies are going to realize this of like, hey, just one additional purchase per hour is going to make this person profitable. Why would I not have a live salesperson who can showcase my product and answer questions and build trust with a with a random customer? Because that's the name of the game with e-commerce is building trust. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, so shifting gears a little bit to things that you put out in the world, what was like your favorite couple things that you shipped in 2020? um 2020 i did a lot so i created this thing called the all access pass basically the podcast got popular and the podcast all about ideas and the number one question i would get every day is 
all right, cool, I got this idea, but like, where do I start? How would you approach this? You know, could you help advise me? And it's like, no, nah, that doesn't scale. So I thought, okay, here's what I'll do. I'll take three projects and I will show you how I go from zero to one on a daily basis. I'll put out a day-by-day email. Here's what I did today. And I'll show you how I bring them to life. And, uh, and I charge for it. I said, all right, if you want to do this, this is expensive. This is going to be $200 a month for you to learn how I execute. But it'll be like you're sitting right next to me on my desk. You're looking at my computer and you get to see. I won't just say, I sent an email. I'll show you the email. I won't say, I did an analysis. No, I'll share the spreadsheet with you or I'll share the template with you. And so I did that. And that thing was great. It was, you know, the, the feedback was really great. People were really happy. They liked that style of teaching. It's like teaching by doing. And it was bringing in like 50K a month of profit. And so I thought this is better than any, most people's, you know, sub stack out there. That's, you know, getting them like $500 and bringing $50,000 a month. So, and then I took that and I reinvested it into other projects that I wanted to do to, um, to help them grow. So, I mean, building in public is something that's super popular. That It sounds like that was like a, a premium building in public experience. Yeah, exactly. Why did you make it premium and why don't you do more like just in public education? Here's how I do things. Yeah, I want to. I'm somewhat restricted because I'm at Twitch. You know, after the acquisition, there's sort of a period of like earnout and, you know, like doing the project that I, I signed up to do. And so you can only be so public about so many things. So that's one like limitation of like, for me to pick up a new project and do it publicly, there's a time limitation and there's a contractual obligations as well. So, so I just have to make sure that everything's good there. And the second thing is I do want to do more. So I actually turned it, I turned it off, right? Like I threw away a 50 K a month profit stream because I was like, well, this is great, but it's only reaching 350 people. So or 300 people or whatever, 320, whatever it was, I'm putting out what I think is great content but it's only reaching 300 people. I'd rather just do this for free and reach my whole audience. And so that's what I decided to do. That's more of where I'm going in the future. And by the way, somebody said OnlyFans for, for coders or builders. So fun fact. So I approached OnlyFans. I, uh, the, the owner of OnlyFans is a listener to the podcast. He's an investor in my fund also. Mm. And so I, when I was talking about this, he basically texted me. It was like, hey, do this on OnlyFans. And I was like, okay, hell yeah. I was like, but you know, OnlyFans has a big stigma with it. So like, will you cut the check and like basically like sponsor it? And he actually said yes. And he, he basically agreed to, you know, like help me bring this to life on there. Ultimately, I decided not to because for me, email was the right medium. OnlyFans is, is designed for photos and videos. And that wasn't how I was going to like communicate every day. So unfortunately, I really wanted to do it on OnlyFans. I love OnlyFans. But I decided ultimately to just do it through a paywalled email and Slack because that was ultimately what would have been a better way to teach it instead of, you know, photos and videos. Although I think it would have been hilarious to do to announce my OnlyFans. <laughs> that would have been a very different kind of OnlyFans than I think most people would have thought of. So, Well, they're trying to branch out, right? So they have a different musical artists and they have different people on their platform. So they're trying to branch out from, you know, just adult entertainers. And so I wanted to be business content on there. And I, I, I hell, you know, if I can be the first of doing something, I'll do it. I, I love to jump in. But unfortunately, it just didn't didn't make it work right in time. You know, it wasn't quite the right fit for that project. So for you, as someone with a rolling fund, how do you think about your investment opportunities in a given year? And what are some of the things founders can do to to get in contact if they're looking to raise? Yeah, just DM me on Twitter or you can email. That's a good way to like pitch your idea. Yeah, that's the easiest way. And I invest in all kinds of things. So there's not like one theme. Okay. What's the investment you're most proud of then? So the first investment I made, I actually wasn't the one who wrote the check, but I scouted it. And therefore I got the same carry on the deal. 
was Lambda School. That was uh, you know pretty early on before it was obvious that Lambda School was going to win. I think at the time they had like 80 students or something like that. But, you know, when I went on that long ass rant earlier about education and like about teaching, it's because I really have been thinking about this for many years. And so when I saw uh, Lambda School, I was like, this is an amazing idea. This is going to be what the future of education looks like. And so I went to my friend and I was like, hey, I want to write a check to this company, but I don't have $100,000 to put into this. Somebody else just DM me uh, about Dukan. That's the angel check I think is going to return all the money. I invested in this company called Dukan. It's basically like Shopify for India. Specifically, it's Shopify for shopkeepers of India. So here, Shopify is like me creating an e-commerce store. In India, if you walk around the streets, every five steps, there's a new shop. Little shopkeeper who sells sweets, one who sells shoes, one who sells scarves, another one who sells gold, whatever. They all went under tremendous pressure with COVID. So what Dukan did was made it where they made like the most dumb, simple version of Shopify. Like you could do it from your Android phone in like less than one minute. You don't need to be tech savvy. And you could share your store over WhatsApp to your customers. And he's signed up, I don't know how many million, you know, two million plus merchants in less than six months. And so... I was lucky that I reached out to the guy because I was like, hey, you look interesting on Twitter. I was like, hey, you, he was doing something else at the time. He was he was doing an SEO company. That's all I knew about. And I was so impressed with him on the call. I just asked him, I was like, what's the dream for you? Because you're, you're going to do something more than this SEO thing. And he was like, well, actually, I had this idea yesterday about this. And I'm going to build the prototype. You know, it's, we're going we're gonna to have it ready tomorrow. And I was like, really? And he you know, started telling me about it. And I was like, dude, this is amazing. I was like, I'm going to get $2 million for you from Silicon Valley people to write into this. And unfortunately for me, a herding cats to try to get other investors on board, it took us an extra three weeks. And in that three weeks, he shipped the product. It started to grow. Other people found out about it. So I'm lucky I still got in as an angel, but I, I wasn't able to like lead the whole round like I wanted to. Yeah, I mean, stories like that are why I... Th- have been shooting my shot on Twitter more. I mean, it's amazing some of the things that you can get your way into just by DMing interesting people. Cool, yeah. I mean, we might as well just see if any questions come up in the chat. Okay, why build over acquire? That's a great question, Ramon. I am more of a fan of acquiring. In fact, like my big idea of a a project to do probably next year is to create YC for buying businesses. So it's YC, but instead of coming in and starting and building from scratch, it's about acquiring existing businesses that are already working to some small medium level and growing them. Because I know way more great operators and they can grow businesses. And there's a whole bunch of businesses out there that are at you know, 500K of profit a year, a million dollars profit a year, $3 million profit a year, and they don't know how to get to 10 or 20 or 30. I, I think I can build this. I was pretty inspired by Andrew Wilkinson has been a big guest on the podcast. And he's built like a, you know, I don't know how many hundreds of millions empire just buying businesses, not even starting them. And so I'm going to create like the, the YC for buying businesses, probably, probably launch at the, either the end of this year or, or next year. Yeah, you sent out a tweet about that micro acquire site, trying to find people to run those businesses for you. Did that end up going anywhere? Yeah, that was a fun idea. So I, I tweeted out, hey, there's a bunch of little tiny businesses, micro businesses that you can buy off micro acquire that like, I don't think are great businesses, to be honest. But I was like, dude, I'll just buy one of these for 5K and just give it away to somebody. So like, who wants a business? <laughs> you know, like you get a business like Oprah. And so uh, what was cool was six other people were like, I'll chip in 5K, uh, just as kind of like you know, donation. So we got the budget up to like, I think 30 or $35,000. And we got a bunch of people applying saying, oh, you know, like, give it to me. I'll, I'll run it. I'll see what I can do with it. And we found a good person. Uh, so we're going to announce the whole situation. But now, now it's about basically in the next 60 days, 
acquiring one of those like kind of micro businesses that is like a 20k business and see what they can do with it. Yeah, hopefully you didn't move the market too much with that tweet. <laughs> okay, so many thoughts on this idea, SMS marketing plus automations for physical locations. Example, I should get a text from my barber 30 days after my last haircut. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. I think if you can basically give every kind of brick and mortar service, if every any service-based uh, business a simple way to acquire, to like to grab SMSs, and then for them, let them automate marketing. I think that's a good idea. I think it's a really hard idea. Like most things that require SMB, small business, small to medium sized businesses, like restaurants, bars, barbershops, it's really hard to get that group of people to do something. When you do it, your business looks amazing. You look like square. But most people die because it's really expensive and hard to get those, you know, to get a barber to go change their workflow and start using technology. So that's the challenge with that business. It's really not an SMS business. It's a can you get SMBs to, you know, adopt some technology? If you can do that, there's 10, 15 businesses that you could build in that that vein. Somebody was saying Crunchbase for influencers, actually. Adding transparency to the economics of a creator, basically a Crunchbase slash Glassdoor for creators to put more data out there about how much they're making. Okay, gotcha. That's cool. I, I think in general, there's a great entrepreneur who started Glassdoor. He also started, I think, one of the housing sites like Trulia or Redfin or something like that. He started three different billion dollar businesses and all of them have the same formula, which is just making previously siloed and silenced information free. So like Glassdoor made information about companies, like what's it like to work there and how much do you make? It freed that information. And the Zillow one freed the information about houses, like what houses are for sale? What were they last purchased for? That sort of thing. And so like information wants to be free. And if you can free it, yeah, Richard Barton, that's the guy's name. This guy has done three different businesses, all billion dollar businesses, I believe, that were the same fundamental premise, just applied to different industries. Yeah, that's funny. I was actually an intern at Zillow, so I knew you were talking about Rich Barton. He has the perfect name for what he did. What's his third one? Uh, he did three of these. Expedia, I think. Yeah, he's a baller. That's winning when you can do it three times. I know we're bumping up against our hours. Thank you so much for, for coming out here and talking about some of your goals and things you're working on, I think. Hopefully you were able to teach at least the people in this chat some some really valuable stuff. Great. Thank you. I love it. Uh, all right. I'm going to hop off. Uh, you guys know where to find me. Yeah. Good job. I love what you guys are doing here. Thanks for coming, Sean. All right. Take care, guys. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us today. I've been your producer, Jacob Pettacord. If you'd like to stay in touch, you can follow us on Twitter at Gen Z Mafia. Or if you're interested in joining our Discord, head on over to our website, GenZMafia.com. We'll see you next time, but now that the show is over, it's time to build.